coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. Why is it so expensive to be poor? The reason why there's not more black-owned banks is because there's there's not the wealth. So it's uh, it may be a chicken and egg thing. It talks about your character. It talks about you as a man. So I appreciate that. Because money's supposed to be green, but we know right. money's not always green. A lot of times, deals are made on handshakes. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black the, people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, not Bill? One. Not one. Come on, Bill, one. you got to have one, a nope. token black person? A token and there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Dear Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you for today and thank you for our guest, uh, Ramsey Hamadi. Uh, he has a great story on business and banking, and thank you for bringing him into my life through scouting and his family. We've become good friends. Uh, watch over our families this holiday season. Keep them safe as we travel about. Amen. Father God, we just say thank you for life, health, strength, and just the blessing to be a blessing. And a lot of times when you hear about so much going on with other people and you're able to help financially, spiritually, emotionally, it's, 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 it's so good because you can't give of what you don't have. You know, it was a time in my family and my life when we didn't have a lot to give. And we asked and we would say, if I did have it, I would do this. Well, God, you've blessed us over the years. And now we do have an extra penny or so. And we thank you that we still have the spirit to help others, that we use what you've blessed us with to bless other people. So God, with that, we say we thank you and we praise you. Amen. Father God, thank you for these two men. I am honored to be here with them, and, and I, I just praise you for how, how your spirit, how your love uh, finds common ground in places where, where no politicians will ever find common ground. And Father, I just pray that uh, today these men uh, just continue to bless you in, in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hey, Odell, how you doing? Doing good, Bill. I'm doing good. You know, I'm hearing all these rumors and facts about inflation and prices are going up. And someone coming from the projects of Charleston, South Carolina. Listen, I understand inflation. I understand rumors. I understand gas prices going up. But at the end of the day, I learned a long time ago, when you poor, Bill, a lot of things don't really affect you. But at the same time, it affects a lot of other people. So, you know, it's a sermon I preach from time to time, and it's simple. It says, why is it so expensive to be poor? And with everything going on, you just you just have to understand, why is it so expensive to be poor? But at the same time, I often think those who are very rich don't really pay taxes. Those who are poor don't pay taxes. So you and I, Bill, you and I in the middle, and we're paying the taxes for a little bit of everybody. What do you think about that, my friend? Well, the economy is definitely heated up uh, coming through the pandemic, and the bend-up demand has caused supply issues uh, as you look at the shelves. So, you know, I'm kind of interested in that. You know, I'm going to be traveling this week, uh, coming week. Uh, I'm going to do a little traveling. So I'm anxious to see what impact it has. I'm going to Denver, uh, and then uh, I'm also... Uh, going to go to Myrtle Beach for some fishing. Uh, in Denver, I'm going to be training the Boy Scouts on the Polaris Method, but I'm, I'm very anxious to see how the economy is being affected We're, uh, in Denver. Uh, it's supposed to be a booming area, so I'm going to look at that. I'm going to talk to people about what's going on with supply, what's going on with inflation, 
Uh, and we're also going to go up skiing. So it's going to be interesting to see how many people are skiing and not skiing. Uh, so that, that'll be interesting to see. And then, then we go to Cleveland for the holidays and I haven't been to Cleveland, uh, for a holiday since December of 2019 because of COVID. So I'm anxious to go back and see family members, but also talk to my family members about the economy and what's going on in Cleveland from inflation supply chain. So you're telling me that when the Gobos get together and PERMA, then the whole economy of PERMA just goes through the roof because when the Gobos come to town, Big Daddy Warbucks comes <laughs> and he brings all his money with him and all this kind of good stuff. So yeah. you're leaving here, going to Denver, uh, Rocky Mountain High, yes, you know, sir. going on a ski trip. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mrs. I don't know how many black folks going down the, down the slopes and then you're going to Myrtle Beach and you're going deep sea fishing, which I'm mad at you for there. But, <laughs> you know, I guess you're just rolling like that, Bill. I guess that's just how you roll. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, it's that time of the year where I roll a lot. <laughs> and, you know, the it's interesting. When we go to Cleveland. You know, I'm uh, I'm the oldest of eight. I had 66 first cousins within walking distance. And when we get together there is a substantial amount of food and beverage that's consumed. So if we come into a restaurant, we usually pop up there and we have to call ahead of time because we get so many people showing up. Uh, one time we all showed up at, at once and they didn't have enough wait staff. Uh, and we came in en masse and the guy who later on came and saw, saw, he says, I thought we were getting robbed. All these people coming in at once. Now, nah, come on, Bill. Now, when the white folks show up at the restaurant in Perma, you ain't getting robbed now if his uh, 66 black folks show up in there <laughs> with masks on, talk about COVID. It might be a whole nother deal. But you know what's interesting, Bill? Um, talking about family and money. And I know you shared with me that you grew up and it wasn't you wasn't rich. And I think we can identify with that again. But, you know, you learn that money is a tool, T-O-O-L and not a toy. And I remember when I... Um, sent my son to college, my oldest son, Calvin, and he wants to be a finance major. And I asked him, I said, Cal, when you go to school, this family knows how to work hard for money. But what we don't know is to how to make money work for us. And years later, he graduated. Uh, he's, uh, I don't want to say a vice president at um, Bank of America. He's something at Bank of America. And I don't know his title, but he was doing some other investments and he came to us and he wanted I don't know, X amount of thousands of dollars for us to invest. And, you know, we love our kids, but you always like, ah, I don't know. And he said, daddy, you know, you sent me to school years ago and you asked me to learn how money works. I know how money works now. And I'm asking you to believe in me for what you told me to do. So it's almost like when you, your kid put those same words back in your face. And so because of that, we invested in him and continue to invest in him and some of the projects he's doing and it's such a return on investment. So we're just, we're just grateful, man. We're just so grateful. Mm -hmm. So understanding money, understanding heritage and history, because of people of color from the South, it was something called sharecropping, Bill. And sometime when you did sharecropping, uh, you had this thing called the interest rates. And a lot of time, the Black sharecroppers' interest rate would be as high as 70%. So, you know, and you're like, fine, you know, I'm just so happy people are giving me some money or giving me a line of credit. That's what they used to call it. But 70%, if you don't understand money and you don't understand interest rates and you don't understand all that kind of stuff, then you get caught. And then later on, like most people, when you start building wealth, we start in our homes and you start thinking things like redlining and all those kind of things. Not that anyone's a victim, but a lot of times there were obstacles in the way. So I love the fact that we have a special guest today who's gonna to talk to us about money. Why is it so expensive to be poor? Uh, you know, from payday loans to all this kind of stuff and all these things, Bill, the payday loan people, they're in our neighborhoods, they're in the black neighborhoods. Um, when you start thinking about uh, title loans, they're in the black neighborhoods, you know, it's like, in the liquor stores in the black neighborhood. So I don't know, Bill. I don't know. I don't know. But one thing I know about business and industry, they do their due diligence on locating where their clientele is. So back to my opening statement, why is it so expensive to be poor? Yeah. Bill, can you introduce our guest? I will be happy to. Uh, our guest today is Ramsey Hamadi. I met him through the Boy Scouts. 
he was on our committee for audit. He would audit the books of the council. And so I got to see him and, and uh, meet him. And we really didn't start our relationship until um, after that. He was working at a local bank uh, that uh, is no longer around, New Bridge Bank. It merged with another one, which happens a lot. And uh, Ramsey and I would go to lunch every now and then. And uh, we got to develop our friendship. And uh, he, he went through some trying times. He's going to share that with us. And then uh, one day he says, I'm going to start a bank. And I'm thinking, boy, I've never known anybody to start a bank. This should be interesting. And then I, I listened to him for a while and he told me his vision, which he's going to share with us. It's, it's a unique type of bank uh, and it's, it's a niche bank and it's, it's, it's in a great place to grow. So I said, you know, I'd like to be part of that and I'd like to help you. And so we sat down and we, he says, well, you know, you're going to have to help us raise money because we're going to, we're going to be what they call de novo bank. And I'll let him explain what that is. And uh, one of the first de novo banks in a long time in North Carolina, and we raised the largest amount of money in the history of North Carolina to start this bank. So let me wow. introduce our guest, Ramsey Hamadi. Ramsey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And Odell, it's a pleasure to be on the show. And so I'm happy to happy to spend a few minutes and, you know, I'll just share with you whatever uh, my perspective is. Obviously, I'm, I'm not an economist, I'm a, a banker. And so uh, one of the things we do is we broker an interest rate. So we're, we you take in deposits to customers, we'll pay an interest rate, and then we will build in a spread and we will loan that money out to customers. And, um, and yes, yeah, so the Triad Business Bank was the bank that we formed and uh, opened in 2020. And um, it was an interesting time to open the bank. We, we got the approval from the regulators to open the bank on March 16th of, of 2020. And uh, the CARE Act was immediately passed. And uh, by the end of March, suddenly the world was closing down. Yeah, closing <laughs> down. I remember you're opening, you're going to have an open day party. I think it was March 13th. And that's the day the government shut down. Right. Exactly. Shut us down. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of hard work leading up to that. And um, we had to not only pull together, I pulled together several executives from our previous bank, Newbridge, Newbridge Bank. And then uh, when we started Triad Business Bank, we, we, the first thing we did is we gathered around leaders from the community and formed a board. And uh, this was a, a group of, of business, successful business owners who cared deeply about the Triad. And, you know, hence the name Triad Business Bank. It both told you what it is and then what our focus is. And so, you know, we, uh, you know, my, my passion for business, uh, in particular, small businesses, really started uh, back in the 90s, right after I got out of the Marine Corps, I, I finished college, and my first job was as a bank examiner at the Federal Reserve. Wow. So I was a bank what city? What city was that? That was in St. Louis, St. The, Louis, the eighth district. And uh, if you were to draw a line through this, it, you, you would realize a, a lot of crazy stuff happened in this district, in particular in the 60s and, and 70s, there was a lot of racial tension in, in this, but, but it's, uh, it was half of Missouri, it was all of Arkansas, half of Mississippi, half of Tennessee, half of, of Kentucky, and you know, you draw that map, and, um, and so anyway, it, but what what it gave me the opportunity to do is it op gave me the opportunity to see how uh, how different community banks that operate within a community, um, what kind of a financial impact they have with their local businesses where they're they're bringing wealth in from the community and they're turning around and, and investing it back into businesses in the community. And uh, one of the things that we saw and we actually measured when I was at the Federal Reserve is how uh, how as several of the, the larger regional banks were acquired by national banks and then really acquired by world banks, you know, banks that were operating all over the world. And uh, what we saw is we saw, we saw really a disintermediation of these deposits where the deposits and the wealth that used to be aggregated in a community, well, suddenly the net loans were actually happening and outflowing into the coastal regions, so mm -hmm. the large cities, and so they're uh, taking money from the smaller communities and investing it in other communities 
it, outside exactly. their area. Wow. Exactly. And so we've seen that, um, you know, even with some of the some of the larger banks that were operating in this, you, you look at their investor presentations and they will tell you, you know, this is where our deposit base comes from. And uh, in one of the one of the larger regional, they, they highlighted about how much deposits came out of the triad in this this region. But then, you know, you turn over a few pages further in their investor presentations, you realize these same banks are making loans, you know, in, in Texas and Florida and up in the Northeast and, and in California. And so so they're really even doing the very same thing, even though they they don't you know, we they didn't give you the same kind of monitoring tools we had when we were at the Federal Reserve. But because of that, it, it really has created a passion in, of mine over time where I have, you know, from that point on, I've worked in, in small community banks that were, were, you know, a few billion dollars or less in size. And, um, and those banks, again, they're, you know, they're, they're generally operating within a smaller region. And uh, for us in the triad, when the reason why we started it is over the last uh, six year period of time now, um, you know, when you and I first started talking, it was the last four years, but the last six year period of time, you know, we have seen 24% of the markets, uh, $35 billion has gone from, from being in these small community banks, which was uh, Newbridge Bank, Bank of North Carolina, High Point Bank, Bank of the Carolinas, Carolina Bank. You know, each one of these banks were, were located here, headquartered here taking deposits in from this community and turning around with the focus of making loans back into this community. So we saw 24% of the market's deposits in those banks. And uh, by the time we started to, to start Triad Business Bank, that, that number was down to two, two and a half percent. Holy cow. Wow. And um, what is even more challenging, and this is, this is one of the things that we also saw is that uh, that two and a half percent, um, you know, it was really it was really focused more on retail and, uh, you know, two different banks, which had their focus in retail. So direct customers and also a little bit of real estate. Neither of them really had a focus of investing directly into businesses, small businesses, businesses that build, make, you know, or, or uh, provide services for people. And uh, really, those are the employers. Those are the ones that are providing jobs. And if, if you look at the, the economy within the triad over the last, you know, over the last uh, 15 years, you know, going from before the 2008 recession, um, you know, we, we have a market that has lots of textile and furniture and manufacturing. And we've lost a lot of big businesses in that time period. In fact, we've seen a 15% decline in large businesses with over 500 people just in the time that I've been working to, to start this bank. It, it went from uh, about 82 uh, down, uh, it's in the low 70s now, wow. the number of large employers in this market. And so that, that also tells you how big, you know, bringing this Toyota plant mm -hmm. is uh, you know, towards the triad, but we have an okay economic story, but it's not great. Um, not like, not like what you see in Raleigh, not like what you see in Charlotte, but our economy is very different. We have, we have 10,500 businesses that have between one and, you know, 400 plus million dollars, but, but only 72 of them have that you know, over a hundred million dollars. So small revenue. group. So, you know, this economy, this market very much is driven by these small, small businesses, you know, less than 500 employees. And yet there's a mismatch between the economies of scale where you have these large national banks who really, you know, they're in a dogfight for those hundred million dollar plus revenue companies. And, you know, the, just their economies of scale you know, you start saying, you know, what does a one or a two million dollar or three million dollar loan mean to uh, an organization that has trillions of dollars of assets? You type it into a calculator and, and you know, you don't it's get a, a number. Yeah, it's so little. You, yeah. you get a scientific notation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so then so your passion is to help those small businesses uh, realize the capital they need to grow. 
right. and start a business. And you, you gave us a quote from Dave Ramsey earlier. Could you share yeah, that with us? Right, right. So, um, you know, I, I think I think people oftentimes uh, fail to realize what a great opportunity there is, you know, here in this country and and how. But, uh, you know, Dave Ramsey and I don't remember the exact number, but it's about 75, 75 or 78 percent of millionaires in the United States did not inherit their money. And so, you know, I, you know, I guess my own background, you know, I, I came from, you know, family, we, we valued education and, you know, that, that is probably the single most important building block is, is making sure you're developing your mind. Uh, we, we valued that, but my parents did not have the money to pay for education. So I joined the Marine Corps, you know, they paid for, they paid for my education. Um, you know, I came out and I got my first job and, and I happened to be blessed and found a job that they'd pay for graduate school. Yeah, <laughs> and so that's I great. got them to play, pay for Well, you probably had the school. GI Bill too. I had the GI yeah. Bill. And, uh, and so my first job after all of that, you know, was, uh, you know, I, I became an accountant, became yeah. a CPA, and I got a job working at the Federal Reserve. So, well, I, I have a question. If someone is starting a small business, mm -hmm. how would they go about right. getting capital yeah. uh, from, say, Triad Business Bank or right, any right. any particular yeah. bank? Well, that's that's a great question, and it's uh, you know again, it's it's a passion uh, of mine. Um, you know, the single most important aspect to starting a build a business is not necessarily the capital that's involved, but it is having the skill set. It is having you know, the experience and the knowledge. And, um, you know, it, it is very, very difficult to go out and start a business, um, it, it, regardless of the circumstances. You, you've, you've all heard the statistics of how many small businesses start up and fail. And because of that, it's also very difficult to get capital as a small business owner. So most small businesses start um, just in people's garages. They start by people, people believing in themselves, believing in their skill sets, um, and, and going out and just, you know, sometimes taking it, taking money and borrowing it for their house from their house or, or saving the money and, and investing it. Um, but if I were to describe sort of a path, how does a bank get involved? You know, banks are, even when you want to help a small business, a lot of times it is very, very challenging. Because of the regulations that you have to live within? That is that is very much part of it. So, you know, what people have to understand is the money that a bank has is not their own. You know, so we are we are literally taking deposits in, you know, from customers and the government insures it through the FDIC. And so because of that, if you want that insurance from the government, then you are going to live by all of the regulations that, that they have. And, and outside of maybe the, the, the Food and Drug Administration, there's, there's no higher regulated industry than banking. How often do they come in? And they're, they're in every year, every uh -huh. 12 months. And when you're a new bank like ours, you know, they're even, they're even a lot more touch they visit often, every, huh? 12, <laughs> every 12 months. Um, but that's, that's the big challenge. And, you know, the reason why, you know, I'm working with, I'm working with some friends right now, uh, one of our directors and, um, you know, in fact, Odell, I believe, I believe, uh, this young man is, goes to your church and he is a smart guy. He's an engineer, he's talented. He's got a world of experience and he's, he's, uh, he's got a drive about him. And I, I just believe with every fiber of my being, I think this guy is going to be successful. But the problem is, you know, he is is involved in a business where he's uh, tool and die and manufacturing. A lot of and, capital investment. And yeah, so there are millions of dollars that are required. Well, he's already going out and he is finding contracts. He's established a business. Um, and he, as a minority owned business owner, you know, a lot of people want to work with him because a, he's a smart young man. He presents himself. He's got all the skill set, but what he doesn't have is he doesn't have the capital. And so, you know, we've been having discussions and strategies because I can't make that loan to him because as a, you know, he doesn't have a history 
you know, and banks are notorious for giving giving people money who don't need the money. <laughs> yeah, the I've, heard who, I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah. Odell, yeah. that sounded all familiar. You know, you need the money and your Definitely. bank can't help you. <laughs> but it's because, you know, we got regulators that come in right behind us and and they'll open up this loan and say, okay, you know, here's a business, but that business is losing money. Why did you make this loan? Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what has to happen? And even, you know, the, the government's even got this small business administration and it is there to inject capital capital in these small businesses. But you know what? These small businesses have to have two years of profits before they you can to make before they look at government you. loans wow. to wow. them. <laughs> so it's that way. So even the government programs are designed to give money to businesses that are already successful. And so, you know, what I've been doing with with uh, you know, this this young young man who's trying to start his business is I've been talking to him and saying, "Okay, you know, you have a couple of different paths. You can go work for somebody and make yourself so valuable that they just pay you lots of money and you develop and you save that capital and you get, you know, save up 30%, you buy your first machine and you start, you know, doing contracts. Or one of the things, that, and, and he was pretty creative, What I, one of the directions he's gone is I think he's, he's going to head down a path of a joint venture where he's found one of these other businesses that already has all the equipment, all the manual. And he said he has created a separate entity whereby he's going to split the profits with that, that business owner, where he's going to go out and he's going to sell to these businesses and get the contracts. And then he's going to come in and he's going to manufacture the parts and, and do the work and even, even maybe his own employees and he may have to do it at night. He may have to do it in the evenings when those those machines aren't being used. But then he's going to give profits and basically, in a way, renting the equipment. And so that's that's one creative way. Um, you know, one of the other strategies that uh, you know we did with the bank is, as you know, uh, our executive team. Well, we we pulled we pulled three of the five executive members from from this larger successful bank, and so we came in together. And, you know, a lot of times small businesses, small business owners, they want to do things on their own. And and sometimes they miss opportunities to work together with people who can pool their resources. Bringing a partner. Who can also fill in the gaps. Yeah, help them with something. You know, uh, we had Marty Kodas on a couple of weeks ago. We asked him how he got started. And it was very interesting because we asked him, how does he do his banking? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, my first first, uh, building I built, uh, I I went and got contracts for the tenants. I went to my contractor and got all my bids. Then I sat down with the bank and I showed them I had people that are going to move in and this is the cost. And they lent me the money to get it. I had to put some money in. And he said, once I did that, I waited a while to there was equity built up. And then I refinanced and took some of that Mm -hmm. capital out and did another job. Same way. Had it pre-rented. Had the contract, you know, already signed, and he says that's the model that he's used. Yeah, and he, you know, Marty comes into this. He had the experience, he had the expertise, he knew the business plan that he was trying to execute, and and he had the next step figured out yeah. along the way. And um, you know, it's very, very difficult. You know, sometimes there's no shortcuts in life, right? Yeah, amen, <laughs> amen. No shortcuts. A lot of times people want to jump into a business and you know they don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And you know sometimes that's successful. Every once in a while, somebody will make or build or create something and the world is just dying for it. But that's, that's not the... That's not the Dave Ramsey story no, of where no. the, that. <laughs> well, you know, folks, I'm going to share with you. I'm going to brag on Ramsey a little because I, I was part of it and I got to see it from a distance. He, he uh, when he put his vision for Triad Business Bank was to have the board members come from the community and be responsible for nonprofits. And I remember the the slide that he always showed when he did a when he did an ask for money was all these nonprofits that that the folks on the executive board represented and they were community leaders. And then, then he went, um, he raised the most amount of money for DeNovo bank in the history of North Carolina. How much, how much did you raise? So we raised, we raised $50 million, $51 million. In about 18 months, right? Right. And then, uh, and then we turned around and a year later, we raised an additional $15 million. Um, 
But what is exciting about that is, you know, it kind of speaks to the need and, and, um, and also the people that were involved, you know, people invest and that's, that's probably an important story for a, a small business owner is, you know, people invest in people. They don't necessarily invest in ideas. Hmm. And, you know, I saw that firsthand. We had over 350 investors and you know how many meetings you and I personally oh went on. We did a lot. Um, but uh, we had over 350. Most of them were business owners. And so most of them sort of went down this path themselves. And, you know, like the Dave Ramsey, you know, statistics would tell you, you know, three quarters of those business owners, you know, did it themselves and and went through every one of those painful steps of trying to come up with capital and trying to invest in their business. But we had 350 out of the triad. And so we were, we were very much owned by businesses in the triad. And, um, and so when we pulled the, you're right about getting the business leaders, getting the board members and those leaders. And, you know, without doing that first, without getting those members on board, uh, you know, it never would have worked. But, you know, today, um, you know, we and we, we also pulled uh, four to five from each one of, you know, the triad's an interesting area. You know, it's three separate cities. See, yeah. And so you've got three very distinct cultures. But, um, you know, in 45 minutes, you can get any place, you know, in yeah. the triad. Yeah. And also, if you're a kid, you know, you, you may feel like High Point is a different world than Winston-Salem. But, you know, if your kid gets a job in, in Winston-Salem, you know, and you're living in Greensboro, you're high-fiving because your kid and, you know, your <laughs> they're staying in town. you know, here close. If they're in Raleigh or Charlotte, you're going to see them once a month at best. Yeah, that's you right. Know? So it is, it is economically, it's one community. So we, we came up with uh, four to five board members in each one of those three cities. And, um, you know, so the nice part is any one of those businesses in that market, you know, they not only have my cell phone number, but they have the board members cell phone numbers, you know, in their, their phones too. Yeah. You know, the, and the other thing is you brought a great team together. We did. And you cherry pick some of the best around and, you know, so wonder, you know, so few people get the opportunity to do this, but we were able to, we were able to come up with a board that was diverse. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we got, so we've got, you know, um, it just run through the statistics. I don't want to brag. It was a, it was <laughs> a good. great board. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's diverse and yeah. lots of women represented and, you know, every single, you know, member of this community. And we, we touch lots of different communities because of it. And the president of your company of uh, tribe is, is a woman, Robin. It, it is. And, and she's terrific. She, you know, people, people respect and they appreciate me, but they like her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And she's very, <laughs> Very likable. And then you brought in Wes Budd, who's another superstar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we were going through the bank training at UNC, uh, the regulators got up and bragged on Wes mm -hmm. right. that, you know, he's probably one of the best underwriters that you've in, in the state. Yeah, absolutely. So you've yeah. got a great team and that's important. Yeah. And that, that underwriting really, when you break down what it is that a business does, mm -hmm. you know, that otherwise any capital fund, anybody with money could be a bank. Yeah. But, you know, what's different is you got to have that risk management skill set that uh, can look at a business, can look at the financials. They can underwrite, you know, for level and trend of profitability. They can break out one time items and look at qualitative and quantitative aspects to the financials. All of these things, you know, in, in looking at a business and the, those trends, again, all of these things, it makes taking a business up out of the ground very, very difficult to, to borrow money Absolutely. from a bank um, because, because they have to undergo that, that level of scrutiny. Yeah. We've kind of monopolized the conversation, which I love, <laughs> but we need to get my buddy in here. Right. Odell, you've been quiet and I know you got a question or two. Oh yeah. But, but I'm, I'm fascinated by what's been done. A couple of questions and I'm just going to be some short questions for some short answers. I'm not going to do my usual zillion question and one thing, Ramsey, I'll spare you that. <laughs> but, you know, when you talk about the FDIC, uh, I'm involved with some business. I'm the owner of a couple of small businesses myself, but one of the businesses I'm involved in uh, have millions of dollars. And we always struggle with the fact that we have more than $250,000 in one bank. And we struggle with, it has to be a way because we understand that all that's guaranteed or insured is a quarter of a million dollars. 
Right. Is that the direct or correct assumption there? So if, say we have a million dollars in a bank and it's just insured for 250,000. Uh, heaven forbid, if something happens, it's got to be a better way we, we can protect our assets, correct? Right. Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, we have a long, diverse history in the United States of, of bank CEOs doing very stupid things and causing banks to fail. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the industry as a whole, the, the banking system is extremely strong. And it's strong for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, because of the FDIC and the government is backstopping the the deposits. And as as you mentioned, Odell, um, you know you that's only up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, two things. One is there actually is is a system and a way whereby larger deposits than that can get FDIC insurance. Um, okay. generally, and, and it's, you know, I won't go into details, but basically it's factoring. It's a sharing program. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's called Cedars and, you know, there's even a couple of competitors, but there's a way you can actually, you know, take all those deposits to one bank and that, that bank can pay you an interest rate and then they can factor it out to a lot of different other banks. So you get basically the insurance from a lot of different banks and wow. uh, it would protect the deposit. The biggest, biggest problem with that is, you know, if you go and do that, you're just not going to get a very good interest rate from the bank. Right. You know, there's, there's, you know, it's inefficient for the bank. It's, you know, and, and it's just, you know, and especially today's world, you're not going to get a good interest rate from any bank, any place. Cause, um, cause there's so much money supply out there. Um, well, but, the second, sense, but, and this go is ahead, more sorry. important. And let me, let me just tell you this and assure you this in the United States, no bank deposit, no bank deposit has ever been lost, despite all the different failures. And here's the reason why is the first thing the FDIC does when a bank is failing is they turn around and they try and take that deposit base, which has real value. Those customers, you know, you, you, Odell, you know how well you are valued by those banks. Well, there's a whole lot of it. Just because one bank is failing doesn't mean there's not 10 other banks that would like to have that deposit relationship. And right. so, you know, never in the history of the United States has a FDIC insured or non-insured deposit, you know, been been lost in part. Um, well, that's, that's yeah. good news, man, because one other thing I want to talk to you about offline is that but a, a second question for you are you familiar with what we, what we call black banks in greensboro we have one called mechan mechanics and farmers and farmers um, right. a lot of times at one time we had a lot of what we call black banks right but we don't have that many why is that yeah um you know i i don't have a great answer for you on that um you know i have a lot of observations more than i have answers for you. Um, you know, Odell, I will tell you when I went out and I was raising money for the bank, we had to, uh, you know, we had to bring in deposits from, uh, or I'm sorry, the investments were had a $50,000 minimum investment. So for somebody to invest in our, and, and be part of our capital raise, generally they were, they were millionaires. Um, and I will tell you that the number of minority investors we had, uh, it, you know, I don't know precisely, but it, it couldn't have been more than two or three uh, percent of the investors were minorities. And so, uh, you know, again, just observations, there isn't a lot of wealth in the black community in the triad. I can tell you that for certain. There is some and some of it is very profound, but there's not a lot. Uh -huh. um, now, you know, how much of that goes to all of the systemic problems that we have? You know, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on that. But the one thing that I, I can tell you is, you know, this young man that I'm working with and trying to help coach and help him develop his business. Uh -huh. I tell you, I, I, regardless of black or white or, you know, I don't see that desire, that belief in themselves the knowledge and confidence and the drive, I, I don't see enough of that. And I, I do believe that that is, that is a source, that's an opportunity 
Um, you know, the, the reason why there's not more black owned banks is because there's there's not the wealth. So it's uh, it may be a chicken and egg thing. You know, how do you uh -huh. so um, but I, I, I don't have a good answer for you. So my thought is this. At one time when uh, traditional blank banks, white banks wasn't loaning to minority companies as much, then I think that um, one was forced to come up with the entity to serve themselves. Right. Almost like uh, HBCUs were sort of powerful at one time. They're still very powerful and still very useful. But now that um, majority schools are accepting and allowing, just like majority bankers are lending, I think that takes away from uh, the Black wealth that's there. And right. the business entities will go, you know, and partner with others. Yeah. But that's, that's a great point. Let me ask one other question for you, too. You know, when you think about it, walking in and not saying you do it or any other bank do it, but walking in when the underwriter looks at someone and everything else is equal. If they right. look at Bill comes in and they look at Odell, a good looking black guy comes in <laughs> and let's just say our portfolio is the same. Yeah. But I'm black and he's white. Right. It might be possible that the underwriter may give Bill a slight advantage based on his familiarity with Bill versus with a Odell. Mm -hmm. So we understand that kind of stuff. Um, at the same time, is it right? Is it fair? No, but life is not fair. So have you ever had any experience with that? Not you yourself, of course, right, right. but have you ever had any experience that way? Because money's supposed to be green, but we know right. money is not always green. A lot of times deals are made on handshakes Deals are made on, well, we know him, he's good for it, even though he's a horrible in debt and everything else. But, you know, since this person belongs to our country club or our church, I mean, our faith community, whatever, we're like, hey, they're good for it. Right. And that's the, the collateral is they're good for it. That's the only collateral. Well, uh, you know, I think you'll I think you'll actually be pleased to know there is uh, when it comes to lending to a business. Now, there's, there's two very distinct paths. If you're lending to a consumer loan, so for a, a home mortgage, you know, for cars, cars yeah. home equity loans, the first thing that happens is you gather information about race. And that's all required by, by law. When it comes to a commercial loan, there's no, there's no requirement. None of that information is gathered. The underwriters don't even know that, you know, they, there's no pictures of anybody. They, they have no idea. They're looking at financials. They're look, they're spreading numbers. You know, they're looking at business trends levels, all those different things we talked about. Now you have a, a, a you know, a business relationship manager. And, um, you know, I will tell you what they discriminate on is they discriminate on people who are going to give them business. So people, you know, it's getting back to Odell, you know, the, the, the bankers love giving money to people who have money, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. you know, and it, it's, they and, can repay the loan. <laughs> right. I, I do think when you start trying to peel back, how come, how come there is more successful new businesses started um, by white owned business owners versus minorities? I think it probably does have to do with, uh, with probably friends, family, you know, people who who they they do have probably an easier access to getting that initial capital. They have an advantage. You might have a little advantage. And, yeah. You know, those initial capital investments don't come from the banking industry. You know, they come right. from Family. mom and dad yeah. and the you know and and people's people believing in them. And so, you know, I'm not going to say that there's not, you know, there's not uh, challenges there, but I. I don't think it's within the banking industry. I think it's getting over that initial hurdle, you know, and, um, you know, trying to get there. You know, the, I, and correct me if I'm wrong. I remember sitting in a couple of meetings uh, and the FDIC has a requirement that you have to do some higher risk loans or loans that go to minorities. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, and again, this is, there's a community reinvestment act. Um, you know, there, and there's lots of different regulations that are in, the, in there. Um, you know, one of the reasons why we are, our narrow focus is on businesses 
is because the regulation involved in making consumer loans, more home mortgage loans, and Odell, you, you touched on something is exactly right. Um, and I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it, mentioned it, but you know, you, we've all heard the term redlining, you know, that, that is something that banks used to do. They, they would say, Hey, listen, you know, here's a simple underwriting practice. If it, if it, there is a loan application and it's coming from this yeah. zip code, yeah. we don't want it. Yeah. You know, we're not even going to process it. We don't like that collateral. We don't want to work there. And, uh, you know, that, that is overt discrimination. It absolutely is. Laws passed, and I, I couldn't even tell you when, when uh, the Community Reinvestment and HUMDA, Home, Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, and, you know, all of the different, you know, thousands of pages of regulation that, that we got, when it came in, but it, you're right, Odell, it, it did fix a lot of problems. Um, but not necessarily on the commercial side, it doesn't get that initial capital into the hands of, of the business owners who are trying to start up. That's where I see the biggest deficiency. In fact, the, as part of the CARE Act, there was, uh, I believe, uh, 250 or $300 million that came into Guilford County. And there's a lot of business leaders are even still trying to figure out what do we do with this? And I, you know, I, I voiced my opinion. You know, one of the things I would love to see happen is I'd love to see some kind of a program that gets more of that money directly into these small business owners, people who are trying to still to get, struggling, get yeah. a business going. Yeah. Um, you know, once a business gets going and it proves successful and it's making money, you know, everybody wants to invest in sure. it. Yeah. <laughs> but getting started, you know, that's, that's where the, that's where the struggle is. Well, you know, the, uh, it's interesting. If you look at uh, the middle-class and the wealth that's generated from their homes. You know, they've done it over with homes over a period of time. And uh, the minorities didn't have that opportunity. They were living in certain areas that there were no home ownership. It was living in uh, housing, housing that was rented uh, or government subsidized. So they never had an opportunity to build that generational wealth uh, that, you know, you know, I, I grew up pretty poor. I remember when my mom passed, her house was her only asset, but it was, it was $40,000 right. and there was eight kids. So we didn't, we didn't walk away with a ton of money. Uh, my dad was a fireman, so he didn't make a lot of money. Well, Dell's the same thing. When you, when you do an estate, we were talking about uh, some friends that have estates that are in the millions and Odell said, Oh, we don't have to worry about that. Right. No, no, not at all. You know, it's interesting when you start thinking about family and Ramsey, I, you know, we have something else in common. I'm a caregiver for my mother and you're a caregiver for your late wife. Mm -hmm. But before Bill gets into that, the Marines, why the Marines, the few, the <laughs> proud, the Marines, I mean, the Marines, you all eat, you know, you eat nails and spit out, you know, you right. spit out bullets, you know? Well, I, uh, you know, some people might claim that it's a, a character flaw, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Bill and I do have a lot in common. I was, I was an Eagle Scout. Yes. I, uh, you know, I, I was the youngest of four kids. Um, you know, I, there has always been something in, in me, um, that has driven me to, to want to be excellent. And, um, you know, I, I, I tell people, you know, I, I can't always explain why, it, you know, why I just always, my family were, you know, did not grow up as Christians. In fact, my dad was Lebanese and, uh, he came from Druze. It was, uh, and it, you know, I, I don't want to go go off on a tangent, but I wouldn't describe that as, as a Christian, Christian background. And yet, um, you know, I, I think God put something in me, um, you know, it's, it, and, you know, I, I don't think we want to get into a sermon here, but, you know, the, you know, the scripture says nobody comes to God except through the spirit. And, you know, there, there was always something that was in me that, that drove me um, you know, to become a Christian that drove me to want to be the best at things. And, yeah. and that, that definitely had an appeal joining the Marine Corps. Um, yeah. And uh, well, you know, so. folks, um, Ramsey's not sharing everything. I'm going to make him share something. Uh, but uh, he, 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 he didn't come from a privileged life. He, uh, he came from hard knocks. And even as he became successful in the banking industry, 
uh, he he had a, his wife got cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's uh, you know I I uh, am today remarried mm-hmm. and have a you know just a just a, a fantastic. But you know this isn't the mother of my children. I've got some teenage and early 20, 20 children. And, and so, you know, that is, that is very hard. Um, you know, my wife, uh, first got developed a triple negative breast cancer in 2013. And, um, you know, we fought it aggressively. We thought we won. And, um, two years later, um, you know, it, it came back and, and as, as we always knew, you know, is uh, and is often the case with especially small cell, um, small cell cancers. When it comes back, you know, it, then more times than not, you're going to lose that battle. Mm-hmm. And um, and we did. And um, so uh, a lot of things kind of came together. Uh, we were selling the bank in 20, 2015. We sold New, Bri- it in New Bridge Banks, yeah. Um, and, and I guess uh, maybe I'm confusing the dates the, we found out, uh, we found out about a month after we sold the bank that my wife's breast cancer had come back and she lived, she lived 10 months. Uh, from and you were the primary caregiver for that. I, I was, uh, you know, we ended up doing hospice at home. Um, and you know, I just, I tell people I'm one of the few people I know that, uh, I fulfilled the vows. You, you know? did. I, uh, you know, until, until death do us part. And, um, you know, it was, it was very, very difficult. And, um, I can't imagine, uh, you know, I've told my new wife that, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know what happens at the end, but, uh, you or I, but I, you know, I'm going to be there with you. Yeah. You, you've already proven that. I'm proud of you, man, for that. We, uh, Thank you. we had Zach Mahaney on, uh, and he had ran same, same thing with his wife and yeah. he stayed with her. And I think, uh, you know, it, it talks about your character. Mm-hmm. It talks about you as a man. So I appreciate that. I appreciate uh, that. It's just humbling to see someone with so much success, but at the same time, we all, we have to live this thing called life. And I guess we don't take ourselves too serious or we look at ourselves as an exaggerated version of who we are. Yes, you're the bank president. Yes, you, the big cheese, the grand poobah. However, you're a person, and I've always admired that about you, sir, that you're very humble. Um, you know, only thing I'm jealous about is that you, do you still run like five miles from time <laughs> to time? I'm getting there. I'm, I'm trying to get there, but I don't know. You know, I'm still working on it. Well, but, you know, how, how you're still running all those I, miles in the morning, you know, five I, times I, a week. I, I don't run a lot. I, I did run seven miles two weeks ago in a, in wow. a run, wow. and, but I wasn't training for it. And, um, but, you know, I, I will tell you, I had one of my best runs in, in a long, long time, but it was because I've lost a little bit of weight. Yeah, it's a lot easier, isn't and it? it? It is when you're not carrying that weight. <laughs> but, you know, I also, the second thing I'd, I'd credit is, uh, you know, I'm part of a great group of of people that work out. It's uh, called TFW training for warriors. Not one of us is a warrior there. <laughs> <laughs> you got but, the training part, but we do do the training yeah. for warriors. So uh, it's the only TFW in Greensboro. And I, I tell you, I've been doing it for three, four years and I just love, love it. it. And, uh, and how often do you go? Y'all ought to look up. Uh, so it is, it is five days a week. I probably average four days a week. There's, okay. there's generally something during a week that'll take me out of, mm-hmm. out of one or so of them, but you know, uh, on more times than not, I'm, I'm there, you know, every day during the week. Um, so anyway, that's great. It is it's, you know, it's part getting, of the life. We're getting toward know. the end here and we always ask our guest, uh, to give the last word, but also tell us how you find common ground, mm, how I find common ground. Um, you know, I, I tell you, I, uh, you know, I, I had a privilege. You, you talked about me not growing up in, in privilege. Uh, and that's true. My, my father was from Lebanon. And, uh, so I, I grew up in the seventies and early eighties in Kansas city. And it's a great area, but I, I didn't grow up feeling privileged. I didn't feel, grow up feeling like the other kids. Um, you know, in today's language, I'd, I'd say I didn't grow up feeling white. And I, I guess that has always made me, um, you know, my, it's kind of shaped my friendships mm. as I I've grown. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest experiences of my life was starting this bank 
and being able to choose, you know, a, a board and, and the diversity that was on that board and then to hire the employees and, you know, to be able to pull through and, and have that same diversity. And, um, you know, that's very different than a lot of banks where, you know, especially so many of them start in these small towns and their boards, you know, are, have been on those boards for 30, 40 years. And if, you know, it hit me one day when I, when I went into, um, you know, Robin Hager, her, you, you mentioned the president of the bank, her father was a president CEO of a bank. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, she, there are three generations of Hagers, uh, and, and snipes that, uh, are in the banking industry and it's, it's really fabulous. Uh, but I, I, she had a picture of her dad's graduating banking school. Wow! And it it just struck me, looking at that picture, that uh, it was all white. That it was not only all white; it was all white men. Men, yeah. There were there were two or three. The diversity in that class from the 1960s of banking executives. There were two or three women in a class with about 50, 50 white men. You know, what I'm what I'm proud about in our industry today, if you were to see a picture of a similar graduating class, it looks it, it looks much like much more diverse. It looks like oh, us. that's great. And being able to start this bank, we've been able to not have any of the legacy and we've been able to. And uh, and and I'll tell you, I, there is so much common ground created because of it. That's so. great. It's a good culture. You know, the uh, what's your vision for the bank? Um, you know, my, my vision for the bank is, uh, you know, it's crazy that I wrote a vision statement, you know, in, in 2019 thinking this, okay, this little imaginary bank that I'm going to create. And, you know, I I wrote this statement one day and I I was, you know, you, you, you want to write a statement that's got this outrageous goal to it. And so I said that, you know, triad business bank would be pivotal to the economic success of, of small businesses in the triad. And, you know, I, I kind of laughed after I wrote it. Um, and then that, the, you know, we turned around and we opened triad business bank, you know, like I said, March 16th, 2020, you know, a week later, the care act pass and all of these businesses are in distress in the triad because, because they are suddenly in a position where they've locked it down they, the government has provided these paycheck protection program loans and they got to go to a bank and they can't get a hold of their bankers and they can't get a hold of, of their banks to help them with this. And um, we had a brand new bank, 20 people, and we had zero business. And so we went full, full time into just, uh, we became a single purpose entity and we started originating PPP loans. Um, in a matter in a matter of uh, two months, we originated 350 loans to businesses, um, 108 million dollars uh, under the program. We saved over 12,000 jobs in the wow. triad. Wow! So, what size is the bank now? It's uh, right at 400 million. Okay, dollars and in assets. That's great. And your goal is to get. Uh, we raised enough capital to grow a billion dollar bank. Wow. So wow. that's, um, and you know, the, that was a, that was a, a stated goal that's, yeah. you know, we weren't trying to fill the gap of, you know, we lost good sized banks out of this community. And our goal was to, to create a good sized bank. And again, step in that spot and reinvest in the community too, which is a big deal. Wow. Um, Ramsey, a quick question for you though. Mm-hmm. If I had to ask you on a test pop quiz, why is it so expensive to be poor? How would you answer that? <laughs> um, well, right now, you know, we are seeing uh, high inflation, 6.8% in November increase in, in cost of goods from the same period a year ago, 6.8%, which is, is just very, very, uh, you know, the, the, the cost of energy is a big part of that. You know, another big part of it. So you have the cost of energy. You also have through all of these uh, just this year, we have almost three trillion dollars of government programs that have been passed injecting money into the system. The money supply is way, way up. And uh, and so, you know, there's different measurements that they have, but it's it's more than there's more than twice as much money 
out there in the system that there was two years ago. So there's lots of money and, you know, just simple supply and demands. The other thing that has happened is we've gone from about 63% of, of the uh, participating labor, the labor participation rate, about 63% of people who are eligible to work are working. Now that number's only dropped 2%, it's down to about 61%, but that, that slight contraction, you know, it's, it is not the people who are, are not participating in the workforce. You know, it's not the people with the $100,000 a year jobs. It is the right. people that are making and building and doing things. And so that's, that's probably the most direct link to this and, and why they're not participating. I mean, there's, there's several different causes. Some of it's, some of it's what's the government's doing, paying people not to work. Some of it is just people people having other options, you know, there, a lot of people made a lot of money in cryptocurrency, yeah. you know, and, and that's taken, that has actually taken people out of the workforce. The stock market's done well. Uh, we do have an aging population. And, and um, so there's, there's a number of factors there, but just short answer is, you know, immediately when the, the lockdowns happened, we lost 2% of the, the workforce. It was weighted heavily in the the blue collar class, and so that's that is the most direct link to the inflation. Mm. Great, great it, answer. You know, it's interesting, Bill. Give me one more shot. Uh, one of the things too, Ramsey, you made a good point. A lot of people, and rightfully so, but I, I kind of push back on it. Like, well, Odell, the government is giving people money, not you, Ramsey. The government is yeah. giving people money. And they won't work. Poor people won't work because government's giving them money not to work. And you sit down and say, okay, if it, to your point, if the government gave out $1 doing all this stuff with COVID, what percentage of that dollar did poor people, working class people receive versus what percentage of that dollar did the airline industry, did the big corporation receive? Because yeah, the truth yeah, of yeah, the yeah. matter is it was government handouts that went to corporations also. Now, yeah. no one is saying, and I'm not arguing, I'm just making a point. No one is saying since the government gave the airline industry, since the government gave this industry, since the government gave those industries, things are not working. But people seem to look at poor people or working class people as like, because you got money, you're not coming to work. Right. And, da, da, da. and that's part of the yeah. whole issue with why is it so expensive to be poor? And yeah. a lot of it is perception. Folks like, wait a minute, Odell, we're going to quit giving you money because we need you to come back out and work. But I'm like, but they gave, the government gave you millions of dollars and right. gave me $10,000. And now you upset with me and you call me lazy and everything else. But I'm not calling your millions of dollars lazy because right. the perception is we need you to receive millions of dollars, airline industry. We see, need you to receive millions of dollars, major corporations. And my $10,000 or 5,000, whatever it is, I'm lazy for receiving that. And I don't want to work. Yeah, That's a perception. And I, you don't have to comment on that. That's just an Odell well, Cleveland, the good looking black guy's perception. <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I do have a comment to, you know, it, it's interesting. It doesn't matter where the money went. You know, if it was given to, if it was given to single moms to help them through, you know, if it was given to directly to a business, Here's, here's the strange phenomenon regardless of who it was given to, you know where that money ends up because the war, poor working class, the people who need that needed that money, they turn around and they spend it. And immediately now it's in the hands of the larger, more successful business owners. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it, it it's, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's just kind of a comment. Where is this money going? I mean, it all goes to the same place. Yep. It all goes to, you know, these commercial businesses ultimately. Um, but uh, no, I, and I, you know, Odell, I, I think there's also a misconception. Um, you know, there is, um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer, answer some of those questions. You know, I, I mean, there are major social issues in, and, you know, I don't know that our government has the toolkit it needs to solve solve them. You know, one of the things I was most excited about that that, and it's only been moderately successful, was the say yes to education. 
where we raised, you know, uh, 20, last it was 20, 20, 28 million, 28 million dollars <clears throat> to and, and I don't think it was planned out well. But what I what I think that program, if it if it ever is done well, could give hope to kids who may not otherwise have hope for an education. I, I really believe it underwrites that. folks. This, this program underwrites uh, higher education yeah. for kids coming out of high school that may not have that advantage. I, I really think that's the path. Yeah. You know, dealing with some of these issues you're talking about. Okay? Well, education is, is key. I mean, every, everybody that's been on the podcast has said, get, get an education. Doesn't mean you have to go to college. You can right. learn a trade at a trade school. There's it's, it's, it's just get yourself qualified to do something. Well, Ramsey, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we appreciate you being on the show with us. And uh, thank you for sharing your common ground and your story. Absolutely. Thank you. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.